Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. I'd like to start today with some good news for any and all Apple users out there. You can now finally find the Scandinavian History Podcast on iTunes. And if you do use iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you'd consider leaving a positive review and sprinkle some stars. As you know, that's the kind of thing that both helps others find the show and brightens up the day for podcasters, motivating them to continue podcasting. Alright, enough of that. Now, let's get back to our regular programming. So far on the show, we've focused almost exclusively on Viking adventures to the west. The British Isles, Francia, and in the last few episodes, Iceland, Greenland, and America. Today, we're pivoting 180 degrees, and we'll look into Scandinavian exploits in the east. In the 9th and 10th centuries, Vikings started to travel on the Great Russian Rivers to trade and raid among Slavs in what's today's Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. These Scandinavians opened up extremely lucrative trade routes, both to Constantinople and to the Muslim Caliphate centered around Baghdad. They also settled along these routes and set up a network of city-states along the rivers. This network was known as Gordariki, or the Realm of Cities, and some of these fortified trading towns would later play an important role in the establishment of the Russian state. So important, in fact, that the level of Scandinavian influence in their establishment at times has become a hotly contested issue among Scandinavian and Russian archaeologists and historians. Today, we'll have a closer look at the most important of the cities of Gordariki, Aldegiborg, Holmgård and Kiev. Episode 13, A Realm of Cities. In the 7th century, Arab armies conquered the eastern and southern shores of the Mediterranean Sea, cutting off old trade routes between Asia and Europe. But money is like water, it always finds a way to trickle through, and it shifted its stream north, and Scandinavians were instrumental in developing new trade routes over the Russian rivers and the Baltic Sea. As long as the Arabs and the Christian kingdoms north of the Mediterranean were at war, the Vikings made money. For approximately 200 years, there was lively trade between Asia and Western Europe via Scandinavia, managed by Vikings and Scandinavians who settled in trading towns along the Russian rivers. The Viking activity in the east was different from the one in the west. Here they were more traders and less raiders. This wasn't because the Vikings who went east were nicer, but because the civilization they encountered there, Byzantium and the Caliphate, were better at defending themselves than the Irish, Anglo-Saxons and the Franks were. These eastward-bound Vikings proved this by raiding and pillaging among other peoples, most notably various Slavic ones, that they encountered on the way to the Black and Caspian Seas. Just like they demanded Danegeld from their victims in the west, the sources describe how various Slavic and Finnic tribes had to fork up tributes to invading Scandinavians. The rivers, Neva, Volkhov, Dvina, Dnieper, Dniester and Volga, and their tributaries, almost connect the Baltic Sea to the Black and Caspian Seas. But only almost. At a few points, the Scandinavian traders had to unload their boats and transport both the vessels and the goods between two rivers at the point where they were the closest, or around rapids that weren't navigable. 
Since they had to schlep their boats over land here and there, these ships had to be lighter and smaller than the vessels that navigated the Atlantic Ocean, for instance. Another benefit with these smaller ships was that they were easier to maneuver in the river systems. The various trade routes started in the Baltic Sea. Three important trading links in the eastern trade route were the island of Gotland and the cities of Hedeby and Birka. Gotland was an important trading post between the years 800 and 1000. Runestones on the island from this time, as well as coins, show the vital role the island played in the east-west trade. Needless to say, the local traders became very rich, and nowhere in Europe have they found more Arabic coins from this period than in Gotland. Hedeby was an important trading town near the southern end of the Jutland Peninsula, now in Germany, but in the Viking Age it was a Danish town. It's ideally located to connect the Baltic Sea to the North Sea, saving you the trouble of sailing around all of Denmark if you're just willing to transport your ships on land for a mere 15 kilometers. In the middle of the 10th century, Avram ben Yaakov, a Jewish merchant from Cordoba in Muslim Spain, visited Hedeby and described it as a very large city at the very end of the world's ocean. He also noted that the women of Hedeby had the right to initiate divorce and that both men and women wore eye makeup and that he had never heard singing fouler than that of these people. Modern archaeologists agree with Abram, at least with regards to Hedeby's size, uh, and estimate that it was the second largest town in Scandinavia during the Viking Age, only after Upokra in present-day southern Sweden. In the year 1050, King Harald Hardrada of Norway attacked Hedeby and destroyed it by sending burning ships into the harbour. These ships set fire to the tightly packed houses, and soon the whole town was ablaze. The townspeople hardly had time to recover until they were attacked again in 1066 this time by Slavs. After that second attack, Hedeby was abandoned and the surviving inhabitants moved elsewhere. Birka was the first Swedish trading town. A Benedictine monk named Ansgar visited the town in the 9th century. In the book on his life, Vita Ansgari, written by Rimbert, Ansgar's successor as Bishop of Hamburg-Bremen, Birka was described as the political and trading center of the kings of Sweden. We're not getting into what that title entailed right now, but suffice it to say uh, that this king didn't control anywhere close to the territory covered by modern-day Sweden. Birka's high point was in the years 800 to 975. The town had a large and socially differentiated population with trade connections both in the west with the Franks and in the east with Constantinople and Baghdad. Beyond objects from these markets, artifacts all the way from China have been found in Birka, but it's highly unlikely that any Vikings themselves ventured that far east. One way to the east went through the Gulf of Finland, via Lake Ladoga and the river Volkhov to the Dnieper. Another option to reach the Dnieper went through the Gulf of Riga via the river Dvina. Once they reached the Dnieper, they could sail down to the Black Sea and on to the Byzantine capital, Constantinople. The Byzantines noted the appearance of Scandinavians, who they called Varangians, in the early 9th century. These newcomers engaged in trade with the Byzantines, and soon the trade route they used was referred to as the route from the Varangians to the Greeks. For about two centuries, 
This was the main trade route between Asia and Western Europe. Dnieper was a relatively easy river to sail, but there were seven rapids that caused all sorts of problems. At these rapids, the Scandinavian traders would have to get their ships out of the water and carry the vessels and their goods downstream until the river became navigable again. If transporting the ships and goods wasn't enough of a hassle, they also had to look out for attacks by local nomadic tribes at the same time. The rapids began towards the end of the route, south of Kiev, where the river turns south. There, it used to fall 50 meters in 66 kilometers. I'm saying used to, because in the middle of the 20th century, Soviet engineers constructed a chain of basins, making the river navigable without any unnecessary caring. Once they had passed the rapids, they still weren't out of danger. The ships still had to pass a narrow rocky spot called the Fort of Rar. This was another favorite spot for nomads to attack the Scandinavian fleets. But if they managed to pass that point, they could equip their ships with proper sails in the Dniester estuary and then sail along the western shore of the Black Sea all the way to Constantinople. Near Constanza in present-day Romania, quite a few runic inscriptions left by Scandinavians have been found. Someone has even carved an image of a Viking fleet on the cave wall. Also back home in Scandinavia, there are several runic inscriptions mentioning voyages to the east. An 11th century runestone from the Schonheim Cemetery in Gotland was set up in the memory of a merchant who set off to Constantinople, but was killed north of the Danube by some locals. The first major settlement along the trade route was Aldegeborg, perhaps more widely known not under its Viking name, but rather the Russian Staraya Ladoga. After going through the Gulf of Finland and sailing up the Neva River, where the modern-day city of St. Petersburg is situated, you'd reach Lake Ladoga, Europe's largest lake. You'd then continue along the southern shore to the, of the lake until you reached the mouth of the river Volkhov. After only about 15 kilometers sailing up the river, you'd reach Aldegeborg. For approximately a century, starting in the year 800 or so, this fortified town with hundreds of houses tightly packed together along narrow streets was one of the most important Viking trading hubs in a network that stretched from Dublin and York via Hedeby and Birka to Constantinople and Baghdad. It's estimated that between 90 and 95% of all Arab dirham coins found in Sweden passed through Aldegeborg. Quite a few of them have been discovered by archaeologists digging in the city as well. Other interesting finds include pagan artifacts like Thor's hammer amulets and statuettes of Odin, proving a Scandinavian pre-Christian presence in the town. Dendrochronology, that is the science of establishing something's age by analyzing wood, indicates that Aldegeborg was founded in the middle of the 8th century. Around 50 years later, the Scandinavians seem to have showed up. Even though they didn't establish the settlement, which was already inhabited by Finno-Ugric and Slavic people by the time they moved in, the Vikings soon took control of the town and turned it, this small backwater village into a vital link in their chain of ports, making up the trade route from the Varangians to the Greeks. Nonetheless, it has traditionally been quite important to Russian and Soviet archaeologists to stress that the origins of the town that has such an important role in the prehistory of Russia weren't Scandinavian. We'll get back to that later in this episode. According to medieval Russian sources, albeit of dubious historical reliability, the legendary Viking chieftain of Rurik arrived at Aldegeborg in the year 862 and made it his capital. At this time, the city was already a prosperous hub for traders and merchants. Rurik didn't stay in Aldegeborg, though, 
and later he moved further south to Holmgård, also known by its Russian name Novgorod. A little later today, when we talk about Kiev, we'll have reason to get back to Rurik and his successors. There are several burial mounds just outside of Viking Age Aldegiborg. According to tradition, one of them belongs to Rurik himself, so apparently he eventually did return home from Holmgård. Another mound is supposed to house the grave of Rurik's successor, Helgi. Sometime in the last years of the 10th century, just before he went home to govern Norway on behalf of Sven Forkbeard, the legendary Jarl Erik Håkansson raided Lake Ladoga and set fire to Aldegeborg. By that time, the town had probably been losing in prominence to its southern neighbor Novgorod or Holmgård for a few decades already, but Jarl Erik's raid can't have helped its prospects much. Eventually, it completely lost its independence to Novgorod, but nonetheless remained an important trading post in the Novgorod Republic in the 12th and 13th centuries. After that, due to increased political and economic isolation, the population had to try and make a living from fishing, and a new town grew up on the shore of Lake Ladoga, at the mouth of the river Volkhov. Back in the Viking Age, Scandinavian traders would set sail from Aldegiborg and continue upstream on the Volkhov River to Lake Ilmen, and just before they reached the lake, they'd arrive in Holmgård. Holmgård was a stronghold and a trading post, situated at the spot where the river Volkhov flows out of the Lake Ilmen. Archaeologists have concluded that Holmgård was founded in the middle of the 9th century, which fits well with the source's assertion that the Scandinavian chieftain Rurik arrived in Holmgård sometime around the year 860. The town soon became an important centre for Scandinavians who traded and settled in the region, and Holmgård came to be regarded as the capital of Gordariki. Thanks to its economic power, the town also became an important place in the Scandinavian political universe. And no fewer than four Norwegian kings actually fled to Holmgård at various times in order to avoid enemies at home. The close ties between Holmgård and Scandinavia can also be seen in the fact that, the, that only a few decades after the death in uh, 1030 of one of these Norwegian kings, Olaf II to be precise, Scandinavians in Holmgård erected a church dedicated to him. In Russia, Holmgård, but then referred to as Novgorod, is considered the birthplace of the Russian state. That's because the Novgorod Republic, founded in the 12th century, grew from a city-state on the Volkhov River to a political entity that controlled most of northeastern Europe, at least on paper. At that point in time, the town had moved approximately two kilometers north, downstream from the location of Rurik's stronghold. Already in the year 882, though, Rurik's successor, Helgi, captured Kiev and made that city his capital, in a rather dramatic fashion. At the time, Scandinavians already ruled Kiev. When Rurik established himself as the leader in Holmgård, he sent off two of his trusted men called Askold and Deer on a mission to the emperor in Constantinople. We don't know too much about them. They might even have been just one trusted man, called Oskilder Deer, or Deer the Stranger, in Old Norse, that the Russian sources later thought were two people. What we do know, if the medieval Russian sources are to be believed at any rate, is that Oskild and Deer came travelling down the river Dnieper on their way to Constantinople, and then they caught sight of a town on a hill, and when they asked around about the place, that they were told that this town was called Kiev, and the locals were currently forced to pay tribute to the Khazars. Askold and Deer drew the obvious conclusion that any Viking would draw. Kiev was a weak city, ripe for the plucking. 
So they and their crew captured it and made themselves the ruler of Kiev and the surrounding countryside. Meanwhile, back in Holmgård, Rurik died in the year 879. He had a son and heir, Ingvar, but the boy was still far too young to rule, so on his deathbed Rurik asked Helgi, who might or might not have been one of his kinsmen, to rule as regent until Ingvar would be old enough to take over himself. A few years later, in 882, Helgi set out to Kiev at the head of a force of armed men. According to uh, the Russian sources, when Helgi and his soldiers closed in on Kiev, he told them to hide in the ships and approached the city alone, carrying Ingvar, the underage ruler of Holmgård. Helgi hid his real identity and claimed that he was on the way to Constantinople on a mission for Helgi and Ingvar. He then asked to meet and speak to Askold and Deer, Viking to Viking, so to speak. Not suspecting a thing, Askold and Deer came out to greet their fellow Scandinavian, and when they did, Helgi's soldiers ambushed them. Once they were under his control, Helgi chastised Askold and Deer for having the chutzpah of taking over a whole city without being of sufficiently high birth, meaning, of course, that they had been servants of Rurik and basically stolen Kiev from him. Then, in some kind of Lion King moment, Helgi lifted up Ingvar for all to see and proclaimed that this was the son of Rurik and presumably the rightful ruler of Kiev. When he thought he'd made his point, he proceeded to kill Askold and Deer. According to some later pious interpreters, who have been keen to portray Helgi's hostile takeover of Kiev as a foreign invasion usurping local Slavic rule, the killing of Askold was primarily a violent pagan Scandinavian reaction to Askold becoming a Christian. Some have even gone as far as to call Askold the first Russian marcher, but that is highly unlikely. Equally unlikely is the claim sometimes voiced in Scandinavia that Askold was the son of Bjorn Ironside and as a consequence the grandson of Ragnar Lothbrok himself. Or perhaps that Askold was Vitserk, Ragnar Lothbrok's son. But the attempts to connect the legendary Ragnar Lothbrok to the Scandinavian ruling Gordariki shouldn't be taken seriously. At least, it shouldn't be taken seriously as historical fact. What it does indicate, however, is the importance and prestige that were bestowed upon the Scandinavians who ruled Gordariki, since there was really nothing more prestigious than to be a descendant of Ragnar Lothbrok. After taking over Kiev, Helgi united Holmgård and Kiev into one Scandinavian-ruled state and set himself up as the ruler in Kiev. The city became the center of his state, and the other cities under his control paid tribute to the ruler in Kiev. In a development that can't really come as much as a shock to anyone, Helgi never handed over power to Rurik's son Ingvar when the boy came of age. Instead, he continued to rule Gordariki for as long as he lived, fighting to expand its power and might. He even attacked Constantinople itself, but we'll get into the details of that story next time. According to legend, Helgi was told a prophecy that his favorite horse would cause his death. He tried to avoid this fate by sending away the horse, and only years later, when the animal was dead, he went to visit the place where the remains were, either for sentimental reasons, because he really liked that horse, or to gloat over the fact that he'd cheated death. As he touched the horse's skull with his boot, a venomous snake that was hiding inside the skull bit Helgi in the foot. The ruler of Kiev then proceeded to die, thus fulfilling the prophecy. After Helgi's death, in the year 912 or, or thereabout, Ingvar finally got to rule. 
Unfortunately for everyone, including Ingvar himself, he wasn't very good at it. He attacked Constantinople just like Helgi had done, but with far less success. Later sources describe how he met a gruesome death in 945 when he tried to collect tribute from a local tribe for the second time in a month. The tribesmen rebelled against the greedy Ingvar. When they captured him, they killed him by tying his legs to two birch trees that they had first bent down towards the ground. Once they let go of the trees, Ingvar was ripped in two. His widow, Helga, took over the rule of Kiev and ruled in the name of their three-year-old son until he was old enough to take over himself. Helga realized that Ingvar had gone too far, demanding tribute too frequently, and so she changed the system for how and when tribute uh, would be paid. But even though she realized he'd been in the wrong, that didn't mean Helga wasn't going to punish her husband's killers. Far from it. The rebels thought that they had the upper hand at this point. A woman was in charge in Kiev, and she'd even backed down from her dead husband's excessive demands for tribute. Clearly, she was a weak ruler, and they should take the opportunity to press their advantage. They did so by suggesting that Helga marry the leader of the rebellious tribe, a guy known as, in the sources as Prince Mal. The prince dispatched 20 of his finest men to convince Helga to give him her hand in marriage, and by extension, the metaphorical reins of Kiev she held in that hand. When they showed up in Kiev with their proposal, Helga responded by burying these 25 men alive. But at the same time, she sent a message to Prince Mal, claiming to agree to marry him. She just asked him to send a retinue of his most distinguished men to escort her to the wedding ceremony. Prince Mal was delighted and sent the most prominent and influential men he had at his court to dazzle his new bride and her subjects, who he thought were soon to be his subjects. When they arrived in Kiev, Helga was all smiles and played the perfect hostess. She offered them to freshen up in a bathhouse, which they all gladly accepted since it had been a long journey. As soon as all of the prince's noble emissaries were plopped down in their tubs, Helga had the doors to the bathhouse locked and set the whole building on fire, burning them all to death. She then invited the rest of the rebels to attend a funeral feast in the memory of her dear departed husband. Apparently, no one asked where all the previous guests had disappeared to because a whole host of unsuspecting rebels showed up to the feast. Once she had gotten them sufficiently drunk, her soldiers attacked, killing more than 5,000 of the rebels. At this point, Prince Mal's capital was basically defenseless. Helga and her army put it under siege, but she let it be known that she would be magnanimous and leave them alone as long as every household in the town would give her three pigeons and three sparrows each. No doubt relieved, the townsfolk handed over the birds, thinking that that would be that. They really should have known better. Helga distributed the pigeons and the sparrows among her soldiers and asked them to tie a piece of cloth to the legs of the birds. Then, at dusk, they set fire to the cloth and let the birds free. The pigeons and the sparrows flew home to their nests inside the town, setting the whole place on fire all at once. The inhabitants fled their burning town in panic, and as they tried to escape, Helga had them either killed or captured and sent into slavery. Beyond this little episode, which certainly is a myth, Helga is also known for having promoted Christianity in her realm. She was the first of the Scandinavian rulers to convert to Christianity, and it happened at a rather grand ceremony in Constantinople. Upon her return to Kiev, she worked tirelessly to convert her people to the new religion, 
She did meet with some success, but there was one notable exception. Her own son clung to his father's old gods, and it wasn't until the rule of her grandson that the whole state was officially converted to Christianity in the year 988. Nonetheless, Helga's efforts at proselytizing have been recognized by various churches, and she is considered a saint in the Eastern Orthodox, Ruthenian Greek Catholic, Ukrainian Greek Catholic, and Roman Catholic churches. Under the rule of Helgi, Ingvar, and Helga, Kiev grew to be an important urban center with splendid buildings. Its wealth was based in the control of the river trade and the locals' ability to tax merchants passing through or selling their goods in the city. But just like in Francia and other places, the relatively small Scandinavian elite soon assimilated into the majority Slav population, adopting their culture and language. A telltale sign of this is the fact that Helga's and Ingvar's son was called Sviatoslav, and his son, the guy who Christianized the entire realm, was called Vladimir. An additional factor that weakened the connection between Gordariki and the original homeland of its ruling class was that when the Kiev state officially became Christian in the year 988, they adopted Orthodox Christianity from Byzantium, culturally distancing itself from Scandinavia, which was to adopt Catholic Christianity more or less at the same time. But that's a story for a later episode. Before we end today, I'd like to say a few words about the controversy that I alluded to earlier, the debate about the Scandinavian roots of the Russian state. Even if we doubt the historicity of the story of Askoldendir, and we really should, the Eastern European river valleys were inhabited by Slavic-speaking tribes that weren't united politically. When the Vikings came trading and raiding, it was relatively easy for them to take control. The best source we have for the arrival of Scandinavians in this region and the way they took over the running of the cities along the trade routes from the Baltic to the Black and Caspian Seas, was written in the 12th century by a monk called Nestor. He called it a tale of bygone years, but it's better known under the far less romantic name, the Russian Primary Chronicle. In it, Nestor recorded the history of the Kiev state from the middle of the 9th century until the first years of the 12th, aiming to explain how that state came about. Even though it's the best we have, unfortunately, it's not a particularly reliable source. It's riddled with chronological inconsistencies and other issues that just don't make sense. Historians have been quick to point out Nestor's tendency to give everything a religious explanation, perhaps not too strange considering the fact that he was a monk. This is also an editorial line he shared with most other chroniclers from that time, since they all tended to be men of the church. Another issue, and one that especially has irked Russian and Soviet historians, is the way Nestor basically says that the Scandinavians established Russia. According to the Primary Chronicle, the Slavic chieftains couldn't keep the peace among themselves, so they invited Rurik the Viking to take control over them. I hope I don't have to point out to anyone that this is most likely a 12th century attempt to legitimize Scandinavian control over the area after the fact, basically gaslighting the local Slavs, saying... Why are you complaining that we're ruling you? You invited us to run your towns for you since you were sick of your own bickering and infighting. Don't you remember? If not, I have this chronicle that describes it all. Whether they were invited or not, it is a historical fact, though, that Viking chieftains held leading positions in Gordariki during the Viking Age. Scandinavians settled in the cities along the trade routes from the Varangians to the Greeks. These newcomers started... A as a distinct military aristocracy, 
But with time, they assimilated with the local Slavic populations. Scandinavian names like Ingvar, Helgi and Helga were Russified to Igor, Oleg and Olga. And not only aristocratic names were adopted from the Scandinavians, even the Russian word for lord or sir, Gaspadin, is derived from the Scandinavian word husbunde, meaning head of the household. Incidentally, it's the same as the English word husband. Maybe the word Russia itself is an indication of the country's Scandinavian roots. You see, the Scandinavians who settled in Gordariki were called Rus by the local Slavs, and probably not only by them, as indicated by the fact that the modern Finnish and Estonian words for Sweden are Rotsi and Rotsi, respectively. Supposedly, the word Rus originally indicated that these people came from Ruslagen, a coastal area northeast of where Stockholm is situated today. Ruslagen, by the way, is Swedish for Ruslaw and has been interpreted in analogy with the Dane law in England as the area where the law of the Rus was enforced. In Scandinavia, and especially in Sweden, the claim that Russia was founded by Scandinavians has long been regarded as obvious and indisputable fact. But even though the first East Slavic state was run by the Rus, saying that Russia was founded by Scandinavians is an exaggeration. Only a thin upper crust in the region that were to become Russia consisted of Vikings and their descendants. The broad masses of people were Slavic peasants, and by the time a political entity even resembling Russia was established, the Scandinavians had assimilated into the local Slavic population long ago. Once again, the situation in Normandy is similar. By the time that William the Conqueror captured England, he was no longer Scandinavian in any meaningful sense of the word, even though he was of Viking descent. And speaking of the Franks, in the second half of the 11th century, Crusaders reopened the more convenient trade route from Asia to Europe over the Mediterranean Sea thanks to their conquests in the Middle East. This led to a decline in the economic importance of the trade route from the Varangians to the Greeks. The decrease in trade and movement along the rivers connecting the Baltic and Black Sea, together with the adoption of different forms of Christianity mentioned before, further hastened to disconnect the Rus from their Scandinavian roots. But we're not there quite yet. Before we close the book on Viking activity in the east, we'll follow the trade route all the way to the end and take a look at Scandinavian adventures in the metropolis known to us as Constantinople, but the Vikings called Miklagord, the great city. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please consider leaving a favorable review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. I'm looking forward to hearing from you.